politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and forgotten taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze Media on this fine Wednesday for another terrific day of independent conservative talk with certainly a lot of issues going on here. We got a really special guest coming up in a few minutes to give us a better way forward on the virus. And the reason why I'm talking about that now, really in light of our terrific show yesterday with Rich Higgins, gaming out a second term of the Trump administration, assuming he wins, and what that looks like, what that may look like, and the role we all play in ensuring it looks like the better scenario. If you ask anyone, they'll tell you the most important thing is that Trump wins on Tuesday. But I will tell you that the most important thing is that the anarchy and the tyranny go away. Now, you might say, well, that is predicated on Trump winning. Well, I'd rather he win. But really, we need to be prepared with those scenarios either way. I was doing homeschooling, obviously, with my oldest son, who's in fifth grade. And we're up to the part in the colonial history between 1763 and, you know, 1775, the lead up to the revolution. We're up to the the Tea Party. And, you know, he looks at me and he says, the stuff that's going on now, the trains of usurpations, they're a lot worse than anything that King George did. And I said, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. They didn't have their schools and their churches shut down. They didn't, they weren't forced to be tarred and feathered and wearing a, a diaper costume. In fact, that's what they did to the, to the British custom agents. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have this stuff. And yet they understood that if you allow tyranny to fester, it will come to that point, which is why the Sons of Liberty, I keep teaching him, they had an agenda to provoke England. That's why they did the Boston Tea Party. They wanted to provoke a response that would make the people feel the pain so they could see the light. Because if you, if what they do, if the tyranny is soft enough that you don't feel the pain, people won't see the light and they won't do anything. And the question is, why aren't people doing anything? So the point is, whatever happens, we need to be prepared to convince people on a local level, the people, the institutions, the businesses, the churches, the schools, the county officials, on a better way forward. We're certainly going to need that if Trump wins and, and have him push that at a federal level. But we'll definitely need that on a local level as well, if you know, either way, but but if Trump loses. Because then, as I noted, there's actually a greater likelihood that the red states will push back, whereas now they're not. I mean, either way, if you're in a blue state, you're kind of screwed. Because if Trump wins, they'll still do what they want. And um, certainly if Biden wins. So unfortunately, I mean, we lost half the country, as I've always said. I mean, you really see this when you look at the juxtaposition of what is going on in Philadelphia. And all these videos surfacing with these agents going to Jewish schools and 
businesses in New York. I mean, it's literally like 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 Germany in the 1930s. But at the same time, criminals just run loose. That's the society we live in now. And of course, we find out that this Walter Wallace Jr., the Philadelphia punk who the police had to shoot because he was charging them with a knife, he was a convicted felon awaiting trial for threatening to shoot a woman in her house up. In 2017, he pled guilty to putting a gun to another woman's head. He was not behind bars. So it's funny, like, you know, even Republicans are often like, yeah, there are some valid grievances to BLM, these people getting shot. No, actually, it proves the opposite. They should have never been on the streets. It shows that we're too weak on law and order. And again, I have the article out. A lot of terrific articles out this week at Blaze, uh, theblaze.com. You could just Google my name and you'll see the chronology of my articles. I have an entire article on the on the BJS report on the lowest black incarceration rate since 1989. And that was before the coronavirus jailbreak. So again, we need a narrative on that no matter who wins. And I just want to note, I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to it today, but my buddy Todd Benzman of Center for Immigration Studies wrote a report on El Paso that we now have another round of Mexican nationals flooding the hospitals. Last time in the late spring, it was more the Rio Grande Valley and some areas in Arizona and California. This time, it's West Texas. It's El Paso. So again, they are being shut down. You have the El El Paso mayor putting down um, lockdown policies. And of course, the governor there is just an empty suit. And meanwhile... So we are locked down from unalienable rights while Mexican, under the guise of, or under the pretext of avoiding uh, overwhelming the hospitals, as if that could somehow work, while we are through our front door just bringing in Mexican nationals to flood the hospitals. This is the country we live in now. Again, revolutions were fought over much less substantial Abuses and usurpations of government and violations of the social compact of what government is for, whom it is for, and what it is responsible for doing and not doing. So there's that. There's a lot of other really good stories I have. Um, I'm going to have a very long piece out today making the case of why early voting and certainly late voting, this postmarked absentee ballot business, is unconstitutional and violates Election Day established by Congress in 1845 um, as put forth in the Constitution, Article 2. Um, so there's that. It's a, some good resources and history in there. You, you might want to check it out. We also have, in addition to that, we got an article coming. There's new panic porn. The Imperial College of London is, I mean... After being wrong on the first round, now they're creating a second round of panic porn saying there's no immunity because antibodies wane. And I have a whole piece explaining that, yeah, antibodies always wane. And you're still immune anyway because A, the B cells, the long-term ones that sit in your bone marrow, could conjure up the antibodies when they're needed. B, most of the, almost all of the waning are in the lightly infected people because they didn't need to produce it because they already have, even before being infected, the T-cell immunity 
um, and certainly after being infected. But most of the people that are seriously infected, those are the ones you don't want to get it again. They are, uh, you know, they don't, they, there is no proof they lose their antibodies. And C, for everyone, including the seriously infected, the evidence is on coronaviruses in particular, T-cells are the predominant form that's a predominant immune response defense, not antibodies. And those have been proven in study after study, very painstaking studies from around the world, from Europe, from uh, La Jolla, from Singapore, that um, they, they are very long-term. Again, even for people that never had this, they had SARS-1 or other coronaviruses, certainly if you get this, the notion that you'll be... Um, you know, prone to serious infection. Again, you might be able to, there might be a certain percentage that's low that could test positive again for SARS-CoV-2, but how many will actually get the disease that they like to call COVID-19 from it? And, you know, it's just, it's just total garbage. So we have a, a good piece out on that as well. Um, there's another study out I wanted to get to at some point of the effects on school closures, actually increasing mortality. Um, so we got that going on. We got a lot of stuff on vitamin D. Um, 80% of COVID patients in the hospital had vitamin D deficiencies. There are country by country studies that have shown that Belgium and the, some of the countries with the worst UK, the worst outcomes have low vitamin D. The Scandinavian countries would seem better off have high vitamin D. And again, this ties into the fact that the one thing we could actually do medically to assuage the problem of, of COVID-19, which is prophylactics to boost your immune system, you know, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, hydroxychloroquine, that they dump on and they downright have as their protocol for treatment. No, it's unbelievable. According to the FDA and CDC, they're basically saying no prophylactic, like, don't, you know, unless someone's seriously ill, don't do anything. And that's stupid. And then if they're seriously ill, you know what their treatment is? They have four different boxes. Remdesivir, 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 remdesivir. And ironically, the only study that ever studied its efficacy after hospitals spending 3000 a pop, courtesy of taxpayer dollars and debt, to get that, to procure that from the companies, whatever that company that made it, was that Gilead? Um, it doesn't work. Whereas hydroxychloroquine, even Harvard, admitted it works certainly as a prophylactic so we have everything backwards the one thing that you could actually do how many people even know this to take vitamin d by the way i've been doing it recently and it's amazing i had a bunch of warts on my body they all went away i mean my fingers it's a uh, vitamin d truly is a wonder again god gives us certain tools we could either use them or ignore them but we can't invent tools that he hasn't yet given us and there is no tool to stopping the spread of the actual virus. Now with us today to go and explore some of these options of what we can be doing better, how to better empower people to confront the virus, not to fear it, to live with it, because we are going to live with it no matter what we do. It is going to spread no matter what we do. It will reach that herd immunity threshold, no matter what we do, we could do it the hard way or the easy way. So far, we've chosen the hard way, but there is an easier way. And I promised you to always bring guests like I've had on this week and other weeks that are different 
from whom you will see on places like cable news, where despite the fact that they don't have that traditional um, resume that usually gets them on cable, they actually know what they're talking about. You actually will learn things beyond just dumb platitudes. Wear a mask. How shall this? Okay, tell me something I don't know. Um, tell me something I don't know about the virus, about what I can be doing, about vitamin D, about you know how it really spreads, the background about masks. So Megan Mansell is a former district education director for special populations. So she was responsible for the schooling accommodations of those that are disabled, immunocompromised, autistic, behaviorally challenged. So very much experience with schools, how to run them, the accommodations with particularly vulnerable populations. It's funny that she also happens to have a very smart background um, in hazardous environments with PPE applications. So if you want to just read some of her stuff, you got to follow her on Twitter at Mamasaurus Meg, and I'll spell that for you, M-A-M-A-S-A-U-R-U-S Meg, M-E-G. Very good Twitter account to follow. She is one of our smart people here at rationalground.com, one of the best uh, ad hoc policy groups I've ever been a part of. Gosh, if we had this on healthcare and education, we'd really take over the world. Uh, just terrific website to check out. Um, Meg published recently on Rational Ground a rational guide to reopening, to reopening your church, um, your business, your school. A lot of people, they don't know. We're being told, shut up, mask up, don't get the virus, and if you do, we'll put you on remdesivir and a ventilator, and you'll die. Well, that's not an option. 60 million people likely have gotten it, give or take. It's you know, it's like a cold. You can't avoid it. You have to assume you're going to get it. How do I deal with it medically? How do I deal with it logistically? No one is telling us this. Well, Megan is here today to give us a guide based on her experience. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, and I really am and, and, and I'm intrigued by your background and everything with PPE. And that's why before I get to your rational reopening guide, I want to go back into some of what I discussed last week with Dr. Colleen Hubber. Um, about the efficacy and some of the potential harms of universal civilian mask wearing. So you are into PPE applications and you're familiar with the um, ADA and OSHA compliance with um, dealing with hazardous environments. And I I think what, what a lot of people are confused about is they see masks as part of that PPE smorgasbord. Like, you know, doctors use it and, you know, hospitals use it. And it kind of sounds intuitive. You like, you cover your face. Now, obviously, in the seven months that we've been using this, the results stand for itself. I mean, it's obvious it doesn't work. But could you explain the science why clearly it's not working to stop the spread of SARS-CoV-2? Absolutely. And, um, and and much of the answer to that is in the masks themselves. Everybody has just thrown this blanket over masks and over PPE with the assumption that they're all for the same thing. Um, apparently, according to them, they're all for the same particulate size. They all work with vapors. They all work with airborne particulates. But unfortunately, 
That is in no way true. Um, cloth mask use should be stopped immediately. There is no production control variable with any cloth, cloth mask production um, to measure, test, or assert efficacy um, based on COVID particulate type. And, and COVID, the size of COVID is where you um, should have started out with all of this. When we had information being fed to the public about masks, um, the, that conversation needed to be containment-based, and containment-based measures do everything uh, based off of particulate size and type. COVID is incredibly tiny. It's 0.06 to 1.4 microns. Um, but the exhale openings in the masks that we are able to test and assert efficacy percentages in um, that have extensive uh, testing backgrounds for them um, those will speak about N95 or higher grade respirators and surgical masks. Um, the smallest opening in a mask um, or, or in an N95 or higher grade respirator, the, the smallest exhale opening is four microns. And COVID at 0.06 to 1.4 microns is not only easily um, able to escape through that, but during what's called a plosive force generating event, um, which is a, a sneeze, a cough, or a scream, it actually pressurizes forced filtration um, through those tiny openings. And the only particles that can get out are the COVID-sized particles um, and, you know, similarly sized particles. So you're increasing atmospheric viral load with only those small particles. Now, surgical masks, you hear surgery and you think, okay, well, surgeons use them and that should keep people safe. But yeah. what people don't understand about surgical masks is, um, they came into popularity during the AIDS crisis. They're largely for catching spray. And under OSHA, they are expressly not for airborne particulate um, like COVID. And it took a long time for, you know, things to publicly turn and acknowledge that COVID is an airborne particulate. But from the beginning, that should have been based completely on its size because you go based on the smallest size that it could possibly be. And so, in essence, you're protecting against 0 0.06 micron particulate, and that requires a very specific grade of PPE. Um, the PPE also has to account for something called Brownian motion, both, both on inhale and exhale, um, in order to effectively um, be protective against COVID and that none of our test sites are using exhale filtering PPE that actually works for um, COVID size particulate creates um, a widespread test invalidity due to site contamination. It in invalidates both, um, I'm sorry, it contaminates both site environment and um, materials within that environment and creates transmission points for the contagion that you're trying to detect. So, so, so what, you, what you have there that's very interesting, when you, so let's go back to the surgeons. Um, so, you know, just to break it down simply, there's, let's say, three sizes. There's stuff you could see. It's not microbiology, like a spray of blood. Um, or like the dentist, you know, that, you know, plaque and tartar flying off from the tools, you know, it's small, but you can certainly see it. So that's big. And, you know, that's why I use it. And then there's bacteria, which is microbiology, but it's larger. And then there's viruses. There was never a premise that this stuff would block viruses, right? 
No, no, never. And that's not what it's intended for. It, it was intended um, in a surgical setting. It's intended from keeping the mouth spray um, from surgeons from getting directly into open surgical wounds. And even that has not been shown to um, have any effect on wound infection rates. Um, but then in protection of the surgeon, they're porous by design. They don't withstand uh, plosive force because they're not designed to. And they're only for catching that larger particulate. And it's especially telling that our government places like libraries and other government funded facilities are giving these out. And I think that really shows that no one at the health department has picked up on this. But I think that we should you know, make it very, very well known because we've had this public misinformation campaign and it needs to be corrected in order to actually save lives. And in this all from the beginning was this do-gooder campaign of, well, let's everybody chip in, do your best. But that doesn't work when you're just basically touting the facial equivalent of condoms full of holes when in contact with HIV positive partners. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's no different. A condom so. full of holes. I mean, I've seen some estimates that, that if you look at some of these cotton masks, especially those, they could be 1400 times larger than the virons of SARS-CoV-2. Um, it would be like driving a truck inside of a tunnel if you picture the tunnel 1.82 miles so you know and obviously the surgical mass will be somewhat smaller but still you know a lot larger and clearly it's not working i i need you to and, and, and sure. with condoms we have with condoms we recommend latex because they have 98 percent efficacy you you can't if you can't assert something due to a lack of validity controls and and control variables you can't assert percentage efficacy. So we go with a baseline and the baseline absolute minimum for COVID is N95. Is, is N95. And, and, <laughs> and look, Meg, I want to point out what's very important is there's a seesaw. There's an inverse relationship. So like yeah. there's one thing to say, I'll put people in a lab and have a form fitted, you know, the tight clamp down, you know, N95, and then we could test the efficacy. But the reality yeah. of civilian mass universal civilian wearing of it is that they don't wear that there's an inverse relationship right. to the extent right. that you're in school seven hours and, or you're doing a seven hour shift it makes it worse it yeah, makes exactly. it more airborne to put a covid patient a lot of our hospitals are giving their n95 supply to covid patients upon hospital release and if they sneeze or cough or scream in that n95 in a public place they're making COVID more airborne where it remains aloft for extended periods of time and doesn't settle in the six foot arc um, that, you know, the is is the predictable arc of larger droplet. Um, and, and so then you're left with just many more unknown variables instead of saying, okay, we have gotten some information wrong here um, in, in what we're teaching the public on how to best protect themselves. And maybe we need to look at this from a different angle because, you know, if you have facial hair, um, I believe somebody sent me the percentage yesterday. I think it was 65 or 55% of men have facial hair. And facial hair completely invalidates it because it causes <laughs> gapping around the sides of faces. I have seen people with long drop down beards, like, like a long beards and have a mask over it. And it I mean, it's just, it's, it's disgusting. It's going to cross contaminate. Everyone always knew this. 
Um, you always saw this, the, whether it was the EPA or OSHA or state health departments, they warned, warned about the false sense of security of masks in other environments. Uh, certainly uh, uh, smoke inhalation was one of them. I know in the western states with wildfires, uh, it's still on their websites to, today. You go to Arizona, Colorado's uh, state health department, um, and suddenly that goes out the window. But I need you to debunk a myth for me here. So I was trying to figure out how dense people could be not to see this. I mean, the, even the panic side is, and, and they're trying to so panic with this, they're warning it's airborne, it spreads beyond six feet, CDC is saying that. So they're admitting that. So I'm thinking, how in the world could they think this works? And then there's the other part where they have it perfectly worked out. See, if the mask is as great as they're saying, I mean, it's better than a vaccine. So all right, you're wearing your vaccine. You got it. Why do I have to wear mine? I could be dumb and kill myself, but you'll be good. What do you mean I'm affecting you. So they have this insane novel idea and the best I could gather from it, but but I but I sense from talking to people, a lot of people have bought into this is basically something as follows. Yeah, you're right. If it gets out, it will be atomized and it could get into your mask and your mask won't work and that's why it won't work. But if you, the carrier, potential carrier of SARS-CoV-2, if you'd be wearing a mask, Somehow the atoms only hitch a ride to the larger droplets, which they claim it blocks. Um, and it's only if it would get out, then it would atomize into the air. But otherwise, it has to hitch a ride. The atoms don't come out alone without droplets. What say you about that? I'd say that I have not seen and I've looked and looked and looked and looked. I've not <laughs> seen a single study that has anything to do on sneezes. And sneezes are your wetter particulates, um, and, and it's important because then you're. How are you going to look at a visual? And most of them do like you know um, exhaled vapor through a mask and things of that nature. But those are things you can see um, with these larger spray. And, and then I'd bring up the force filtration issue. Um, you only if if you're able to demonstrate. Um, through these N95 masks, you, you see the vapor videos where somebody is exhaling within a mask and is going right out the valve. Um, if the mask is not structurally damaged in the process, then you need to ask yourself, well, what got out? Obviously, it can't be anything greater than four microns if it only filters under, you know, above four, four microns through the mask. And so that leads you to say, well, what, what did get out? It would obviously have to be that smaller particulate if it didn't damage the structure of the mask. Mm. Does that Wow, no, that. That, that, that's so you're saying you would see, and, and especially, you know, these people who wear it for a long period of time, reuse the same mask, um, that would that would definitely build up over time. And to me, it was just always utterly insane. The and, notion and that build up yeah. that you're talking about is really important because most of the masks you see people in are very porous. And yes. a porous um, place to catch a bunch of contagion right in front of your mucous membranes is a perfect, warm, moist breeding ground for <laughs> contagion. Um, and then when, when you are breathing in those smaller aerosolized particles um, that have been increased in atmospheric viral load due to um, the PPE that doesn't filter it properly on exhale and also pushes it away from those larger particulates, you're breathing it back in, but then those smaller aerosolized particles get so much deeper into the lungs. It's this nebulizing effect. 
Um, and, and that's where contagion really takes hold. Um, that's where they're seeing the, the origin tracing of, of COVID is there in the, in the esophageal tract. Upon exhale, it's getting um, caught within membranes, and that's um, where it is able to, to take hold as a contagion. And, and to me, it makes no sense to say that somehow if you are the mask wearer, um, and you are the guy who has COVID, that you are you you are pushing those molecules with velocity against the mask, right? You're talking, you're sneezing, sneezing, you you're breathing, so you have velocity behind it. And nonetheless, you're telling me that it's amazingly um, effective in blocking that. But yet, at the same time, once they do get out, they're kind of floating around without velocity suspended in air. Then me, who wears it as the victim. It will still get through. To me, if anything, the opposite would be true. And you've given it so much longer to remain airborne. Um, and when you do that, when you're wearing the mask, it's it's not as likely to stay attached to any larger particulate because of that force filtration. Um, and so, you know, I you know, turning your head away from other people and not breathing in um, directly in their cloud after they sneeze, I feel like would be a lot more effective than putting some porous thing to catch right where you're breathing in and out of. And then then if it lands on there, you have a, a much greater likelihood of later inhaling at such a force that you're pulling it from the mask and you've given it time to, to breathe. Um, or any contagion or any yeah. live spore for that matter. And, and again, again, Megan, even this discussion is too deep. It's starting from the N95 point because if you if, if you talk about what most people are wearing for long periods of time, not the people that go out for 10 minutes because they're forced to wear it so you step into a store, but I'm talking about the people that work eight-hour shifts, whether it's in a, in a store, whether it's in a school, whatever it is, those people ain't wearing N95s. I mean, I see them because... Because by definition, it does have some degree of effectiveness. The filtration is is small, and believe me, you're gonna feel that. You're gonna get. You're you're not gonna feel well from that. So people go for comfort. I can't blame them. They go for these cloth masks. It's also become a fashion thing. So they're into that as well. By definition, those things straight up. I mean, some of them, even the wet, even like the large wet droplets. It's not even necessarily blocking. That's how big the the pores are. So that's just a total joke. So, um, so I want to move on and, a little and, bit. And, so, and, that's a, and that's a huge issue. It's a huge issue when grocery stores and places of business are requiring their workers to wear masks. And um, I, I met a woman and I, I went and visited the same grocery store over a two week period. And I went in five or six times. And the same woman was forced to provide her own PPE in order to work. She had one surgical mask. She was a grocery checker and it was brown. She was handling leaky chicken packages all day, handling money, adjusting the sweaty, porous mask repeatedly. And you're not going to tell me that somehow she was saved or, you know, doing a favor to others around her wearing that just filthy, filthy apparatus. Um, and, and don't even get me started on the kids. I mean, that that's just unconscionable um, to the disgusting nature of that. But I want to get into that. 
um, before we talk about your plan to reopen, which does include the schools. Sure. So you have the, it's funny, you have the PPE background, but you also have certainly the education background and with special needs children. What scares well, me- One thing I wanted to, sorry. Sure, sure. I was going to touch on one more thing with PPE before oh, yeah. okay. um, going on to schools. And that was, I have, a, I have a personal reason why I care about PPE applications. And that's, my husband works in a 30 pound fully integrated unit uh, for six to seven hours a day. And, you know, we, we take these things very seriously. If you're going to need to be in PPE for an extended period of time um, to protect yourself against these teeny tiny particulates, you, you start going up the chain of N95 is the baseline minimum. And that's what I would like to just really um, express is that if, if you're going to be in it for longer, then you have to start worrying about an added airline. Um, you need to start worrying about um, the, the different kinds of filters that you have yes. attached to it because you need to be able because to breathe, you breathe. And you also need to know that <laughs> you also need to know that you're not inhaling the mask fibers and these things in close proximity um, that are being found in people's yes. respiratory tracts. And, and it's not like other systems of your body. Once it gets in there, just like we had with asbestos, um, once it gets in there, um, it can cause just horrible, horrible things. And um, that's the, the thing. There, there's <laughs> an inverse. Re- no, you're right. That's a really terrific point, And I'm glad you made it because that window is very is very small. The window between where on the one hand it's tight enough and it's blocking out even, you know, tiny molecules like like in a, in a hazmat type of situation. But on the other hand, that it's designed that you could safely breathe because generally it works inversely. Um, yeah, I could shut off your oxygen. You won't have a problem from the virus and you'll die or you'll get, you know, you'll have serious problems over time, especially long-term wearing of it. And that stuff is very expensive, highly specialized. What people are naturally doing, see, initially we warned about hypoxia and things like that. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't, I don't seem to have a problem. Yeah, you don't have a problem because what you're wearing is garbage. It's a, it's a joke. So, so I mean, j- just straight up without any fancy science, just from the naked eye, it's not blocking anything. It's a joke. It's, it's, a, it's a virtue signaling or it's just, you know, for some people, just a way of complying with, you know, the social pressure or the, the mandate, and that's fine. But don't kid yourself there. If you were to really... Um, have a form-fitted N95, so not just the the pores, but you know you're not just like hanging off your face like a surgical mask. You really have it clamped. Well, I mean, you're not you're not going to feel well after a long day with that, and you do that over time. That's a serious problem. So you need um, more expensive apparatuses to deal with the breathing as well. So basically, this is why Fauci and Jerome Adams and all these people just left off the notion of universal civilian long-term mask wearing because it's just it, the two work against each other. Uh, either it doesn't work or you're going to, you know, kill each other off. And obviously it's not going to go on for too long. So you're uh, also killing yeah. people off. You're also killing people off by convincing them that they're safe with something that doesn't work and is not designed in any way to work for what yes. they're trying to accomplish. Yes, it's- and we're going to get into that, Megan. I want to get into that with you with with immunocompromised and what we should and shouldn't be doing. But that that's a terrific point because they're actually, you know, you and I are not denying that there is no element of problem with this virus. It's basically the dividing line is 
is immunocompromised. So I have seen people, you know, where I go for services, there's this one guy, friend of mine, I feel bad for him. He checks all the boxes. I mean, um, diabetes, heart, um, and uh, kidney. Uh, he's got he's got all the things. And he just walks around blissfully talking to people with, with that, you know, loosely fitted surgical mask. And I'm thinking, like, for you, I'd I'd stay home, you know. Uh, that, that that ain't working. I mean, if you're worried about getting it, that thing, you're indoors, um, not particularly great ventilation there. You are going to, you know, if, if someone has it and, and they are a spreader and they're bound to spread it, you're going to get it. That thing is going to do nothing. Um, so they're the and ones actually killing people. Are, even if you are like him where you may have three, you know, comorbidities existing before COVID, um, you should still have the free will and personal risk assessment part of it where if you still want to be social oh, and sure. engage, well, you know, we can provide you with options of how you can do that safely or you can just go back to life as normal because you should be able to make those choices for yourself. No, exactly. But I um, happen to know he is terrified of it. I mean, and that's oh, that's, okay. that's what's Sorry. scary about this that, yeah. you know, just yeah. people are being sold a bill of goods and this is insane but let's move on to the school children um one of the things that really worries me is this so you know we're looking at a, a lot of us at rational ground and other folks and certainly the barrington folks have done a good job in quantifying the lockdown deaths the panic deaths um both the the missed physical care cancer heart stroke and as well as the mental health um, you know, the suicides, the drug overdoses. But then there's something that to me is more subtle, and it's not something that you could quantify as much in the short term. But to me, it is a greater kill shot on civilization than anything. And that's just the long term social, behavioral, and emotional well being in children. So I, I mentioned to you uh, offline, we we're talking, I have. Um, I have four kids, and my we, we just had a baby girl uh, at the beginning of this crisis. And what terrifies my wife, because we've already seen incidents of this, where she's really scared of human beings, because A, she's not around too many, and B, when she is in the store, they all look like mummies. And and my my fear is like it's bad enough with my eight year old and ten year old, you know you don't you don't you you go seven months and and they plan on going years if we don't stop them uh, with this insanity. But you have a baby that has never seen human interaction. Um, I know you have experience in dealing with autistic school children. My wife asked me the following question. She said, aside from the harm it will do to autistic children, will it not induce kind of symptoms of autism in some other children. Absolutely it will. I mean, there's so much that we rely on with face, faces other than just facial recognition. Um, we, for one thing, are isolating entire populations of people who rely on lip reading, but we all rely on lip reading for learning how to speak. Um, you, that's where you learn tongue placement. That's where you learn tooth placement. Um, and, and I know that sounds funny, but you do hold your teeth in a, a specific way when you make different sounds in your mouth. Um, and some schools aren't even allowing people to unmask with speech pathologists. You have <laughs> entire um, classes of children put around each other, kept away from one another. Um, the 
it's, it's traumatizing. And, and if you see children who have been um, segregated for extended periods of time, they have no idea how to assimilate with others properly. Um, they will you know, keep a border around themselves and uh, be fearful of touch or proximity with others, um, which are really common characteristics also of children with autism. It's going to be harder to uh, properly diagnose. And so many children who do legitimately have autism are um, missing out on essential, um, absolutely critical early intervention services, um, which have very lasting effects on their ability to socialize and assimilate um, long term. And I just, I, I think it's, an absolute travesty what we're doing to children because we're not children are not um with any likelihood <laughs> affected uh by covid yeah. um they're not even uh seen as spreaders of covid and so what it really boils down to with schools and why we are punishing children um in in school systems making them mask and separate and not have things like pp or pe and recess time and music classes because you know heaven forbid you'd be singing um it, it's it's just taking such a, a, a degree of their lives and punishing them for something that they really don't even have anything to do with just to protect a small number of teachers or just to protect a small number of families. And we can do that so much better. It's, so it's as though. Let, let's get into that. Forgot, let's get into that. Yeah. Exactly. I wanted to get into that um, again, guys, if you go to rationalground.com, you could see at the top, um, Megan has a, uh, a memo on a rational reopening guide. So could I you, also did yeah. a full uh, write up just on schools, um, and and I can um, share that with you also. But that was my first rational ground um, article was um, just specifically top to bottom written as a as a note to send to superintendents, especially in Florida. Here is specifically how you structure this. Here is how it's fully ADA, OSHA, and IDEA compliant, and um, you know, reenact free will in your school system while protecting anybody who feels the need um, to have, you know, greater restrictions without the need for masking. So let's get um, let's to, get into that point, because I think that's really what people are looking for, because they're certainly not getting it um, from from elsewhere because they don't want to be uh, they don't want to empower the public. But, you know, many of us from day one, I was using this expression already in March. Uh, shield and stratify or stratify and shield. Obviously, the folks at the Barrington Agreement, um, those three epidemiologists, as well as Dr. Scott Atlas, has always been pushing this, that focus just on the immunocompromised and you know everyone else needs to live their normal life. What does that look like? Let, you know, if you could kind of walk us through businesses, stores, churches, schools, I mean, schools is kind of its own category because it's really, again, kids aren't a problem and you just, you know, the teach you younger teachers or non-immunocompromised teachers, but kind of what does that look like in terms of society? What, what does that look like to be cognizant that the disease is a threat to certain people, but still keep society functioning? The, the first thing we would need to address is existing ADA law, because just because you have the right to reasonable accommodation because you're immunocompromised, 
it does not supersede the person over there who is mm. autistic or a victim of bound torture, rape, or abduction, or um, have existing, you know, diminished lung capacity, asthma, COPD. Um, there are countless exemptions from masking. Well, or wait, wait, can, can you just uh, be, before you go on? Can you just uh, uh, clarify what that means? A uh, rape victim? What 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 that has to do with what we're talking about? I sure. think that's very important. If you're, you know, if you have somebody um, bind you and gag you and keep you in a closet for a week and repeatedly, um, you know, have uh, absolute violation of your body and being, maybe you would have some PTSD or trauma that you don't feel like having to relive every single time that you, you know, want to go so, buy some so, lunch. So freeze meat. frame, freeze frame. <laughs> so so the, 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 I'm stopping you there because I don't think this has been talked about enough. I haven't discussed it really. So you, you could have a rape victim like anyone else. So she has to sit and walk into a store with that thing, which could conjure up very bad things and no and one would know, and she gets yelled at to me. for not yeah. wearing it, right? Yeah, and and they want to question you, and they want to know why. Why won't you put this thing on? Why won't you comply? And these people are told, well, you know, if you can't deal with that, just get delivery. You you don't you no longer belong in the public sector because you had something horrific happen to you when you were 13 years old or something um, that you had no control over. But, um, you know, just just comply or stay home, because even though you don't have this and you're not contagious, um, we just want to make sure you look like everybody else. And that's more important. Um, and, and that's more important than. And uh, your your mental health and your um, ability to, you know, fight what you've been through every single day. Like they're not faced with these horrible things already to have to be reminded of it. Um, and so in, in speaking of accommodation, I believe, you know, that that is important that we address that all people who cannot mask have the right to engage um, in commerce, as does anyone else. And people like to bring up um direct threat. And there's a section under ADA about direct threat. If you are walking up and coughing in someone else's face directly, yes, that's a direct threat. Or if you're immunocompromised and you're a hairdresser and it would put you in, in just too close of a proximity for comfort, that can constitute a direct threat. But the existence of somebody who may or may not have a disease is covered under ADA. And in the 30 years since we've had HIV, um, we didn't have quarantines. We didn't have lockdowns. We didn't have um, any of these measures with something that at once was an absolute death sense, sentence if, um, if you had acquired it. And, um, and this is nowhere near as serious as that, but the measures taken against people have been far more severe. You're, you're basically reminding us that we don't. We never do this in the context of anything else. We, we have ADA OSHA requirements, and you know we. I mean, sometimes I think it's even too much to make people spend a lot of money, stores, establishments to accommodate these people. But accommodating. 
accommodating these people doesn't cost anything different. And accommodating your employees um, who are covered under ADA to be able to work without masks and are yeah. covered under OSHA. Um, OSHA is really important because if you're in a workplace being required to work in a mask and it is not a fit tested OSHA certified mm. N95 or higher grade respirator plus eye protection, you are not in um, accordance with OSHA. Um, the only people who can report OSHA violations are unfortunately the people um, in workplaces. And many people are afraid to report their employers because they feel like they're going to lose their jobs, even though they can do that anonymously. Um, but I think it's, um, Sorry, <laughs> I went a little off on that. No, one. no, no, no. But that that is an important thing because I'll tell you, I get a lot of emails from listeners to this show, and I'm sure they're listening now and trying to figure out what to do. They're school teachers, and that's a real draconian one because they're a it's for a long period of time, and b uh, you're talking. I mean, you're teaching, talking. It's, it's it's one of the worst environments to be doing it, and of course, you know, kids aren't at risk. And I, I've had those with certain conditions, and they'll get a doctor's note, and they still look at them and say, "Screw you." Um, they, they, you know, one of them in Pennsylvania told me she tried to get an accommodation to wear a face mask, not a face mask, a face shield, at least, and they gave her a hard time. Um, so you're saying there is recourse through OSHA. Yes, there is. There's recourse through OSHA and ADA. Um, anyone who denies commerce outright instead of providing reasonable accommodation in a public space um, is in direct violation of ADA. They can say, this is my private place of business. I would prefer you not come inside. And as long as it's not something like a, a haircut or something, if it's um, the purchasing of a good or a service like um, paying your taxes or something of that nature. Well, that's not private, but um, in, in a private business, they would still have to, you know, you want to buy that candle, they can meet you at the door. They can deliver it. They can allow you to pick it up. No contact. There are reasonable accommodations to still allow you to engage in commerce with that business. And they can't deny you outright. Now in schools, um, you're still covered under ADA. And what's also important is that you're covered under IDEA. And under IDEA, uh, you are, it, it's largely about your ESE populations. Um, you, you have students with speech and language issues, behavioral issues. You have students who are um, undocumented and um, or otherwise immigrants in need of language services. Um, you, you have so many different areas um, covered under IDEA. Um, but what's important there is least restrictive environment. And least restrictive educational environment um, for the students in your classes looks different for every single student based on a legal document called an IEP or an ELL plan um, or a 504 between the family and the school that says you will provide these exact services. My child has these following exemptions. Um, and the thing is you can't, you cannot have absolutes. You can't tell me that our school must have masks on every single kid. 
Okay, well, what about the child we serve who's 350 pounds and has to wear a helmet already for a pre-existing biting condition? Um, I, I just want to know how it's going to be the least restrictive educational environment for him, for you to fight him all day long trying to put this on his face that doesn't protect him in the first place and can do a, a great deal of harm. Um, you're, you're needing to look at every single learner individually and every single staff member individually and um, that's what I tried to address with the reopening guide is you allow people to uh, self-identify you know at this point in the game whether or not you consider yourselves immunocompromised whether you've acknowledged it or not have you read up on PPE have you read up on COVID size particulates are you the person in the grocery store looking like you're going to the moon or have you gotten only delivery and no contact services for eight months if so well there are reasonable accommodations that we can provide you like um, separately scheduled shopping hours or in the school system um, for employees or students alike um, we would use bubble isolate subset populating and <laughs> what that is um, is the use of um, quarantine periods or um, rapid testing as is available but for schools you'd use quarantine periods uh, more likely and so that would say okay say we put you in a class of eight and everybody in that class of eight um, wants a higher tier of restrictions mm -hmm. um, so you agree ahead of time to certain rules that you follow within that group. Maybe it's no contact. Maybe it's going into public with uh, proper PPE. If you go along among mixed populations, um, if you feel sick uh, in any way, shape or form, you stay home and there's no truancy uh, penalization for being out. And so if you undergo honest quarantine, then you're able to go and be around others without masking, knowing that you're not exposing them as long as the site environment isn't responsible um, for the exposure. And then you can get into um, HVAC systems, filtration, and UV light sanitation for shared spaces and things of that nature. Um, but what's important in that situation and with immunocompromised groupings is buy-in. Um, there's a way that we already have buy-in in schools for immunocompromised students without anybody really realizing that it's mm. um, immunocompromised people. And that's with peanut allergies. Um, there's uh. two different ways that you deal with a peanut allergy. Either you uh, tell the entire school, well, we are peanut free, nobody brings peanuts, and then great grandma packs lunch and forgets, and then I end up stabbing an EpiPen into a kid's leg on the playground in the afternoon. Um, because it's just really hard to control a very large population. But if you say, well, we have a third grader coming in who has a peanut allergy and we're going to staff out a class for next year. Um, is there anyone willing to follow the, the following uh, protocol? So we would say, wash your hands, brush your teeth, change your shirt before coming to school. If you have peanuts, it doesn't mean you can never have them again, just not at school. And we'll eat lunch either at a special table or in the classroom. Well, having buy-in ahead of time and structuring it like yeah. that, you have a 
far lesser degree of anybody um, cheating and anybody getting hurt. Yeah. And this is no different than that. Um, but we need people to identify themselves ahead of time. If you, if we don't know you have a peanut allergy, we can't serve you. Um, we can't properly accommodate you. That is a reasonable accommodation. Telling the entire school you can never have peanuts ever again is not a reasonable accommodation. Yeah, that's a really so, good point. I mean, freedom, choices, volunteerism, that's what this needs to be, you know, especially as one thing you want to do the draconian policies for March, okay, April. Uh, but I mean, w- when they want to do it for the rest of time and make no mistake about it, they want to do it forever. Um, You can't do that. I mean, you just can't do that. We are a self-governing society. We're not North Korea. And frankly, some of the restrictions we're living under, I don't even think they have in North Korea. It's hard to tell. I don't know if they have a universal mask mandate there. Uh, could be they don't. Um, and, and that's the thing you got it. If people are scared, so then they among themselves need to deal with it. And as you noted, we already have ways of dealing with that with other people. Look, I mean, there are, I know people that have kids that are, um, that have cystic fibrosis and, and look, every flu season is a problem for them. And that could be potentially very dangerous. So, I mean, there's very few kids like that. And you they're know. more likely to be in hospital homebound for part of the year. They're already transition services. And what's most important when talking about schools is that this already exists under every single school system's ESE coding structure. And there's a great deal of more funding um, for students who are, um, ex- you know, put in under an ESE structure. This is all already in every single school system's write up under other health impaired and then some of them have a specific immunocompromised subset of that. Um, and what that comes with is a larger dollar amount on the head of every single kid that's getting federal funding for that school. Um, and that helps, you know, if you have to have a smaller class size, that helps to fund the teacher for that. And when we're talking about teachers and their needs, um, this is already something that's largely addressed because, um, you know, if, if it's a high school age teacher and they need accommodation um, for, you know, they identify as immunocompromised, okay, well, maybe you'll teach lecture style in an auditorium separated um, from your class. Or maybe if you're super immunocompromised at the high school level, you'll teach um, over a digital projector and have an aide watch the physical class in the classroom. Um, for elementary school students, that could be you're the teacher of a controlled bubble isolate subset populate, or maybe you're um, responsible for one-on-one intervention. Um, You could do IEP implementation monitoring. You could do um, outdoor extracurricular activities um, like dance or playground supervision. There are places for you where you would be um, lower risk. And, you, know, um, you can't and, say and two teachers have a. Well. You can't say two teachers have a, um, a heart condition, so therefore, an entire school of five hundred kids, we're, we're we're just gonna you know mask everyone. Not that they work for even if you do have a condition, like we said, but and then have all this stuff and uh, rolling shutdowns and hybrid or whatever else they're doing. No, I mean you you try to move them around to safer environments. Well, and again, worse and, comes to worse. And, and it, the greater- thing is most schools i mean not not bigger city schools this is but a lot of our smaller schools and around the country well you have portables um put them in a portable improve the hvac system don't let anybody else use it or use uv light sanitizer sanitizing equipment between 
uh, use and sanitized touched shared surfaces. Um, it, and then it's very specific and it's about accommodating certain people just like, yeah. um, you know, the accommodation system has done all along and we don't need to overcomplicate it. Sure. So we are almost out of time here. We've obviously gone long and there's only, there's still a couple more things on your list here I wanted to get to. But folks, go to rationalground.com. You could see Megan's work. We have time for one more thing. And I got to get your take on this because this is this is so, so important. And that is the balancing uh, act with with seniors and particularly those in nursing homes. So on the one hand, we all agree that this certainly has been proven to be a dangerous virus for those in nursing homes. And, you know, until now, we've been saying, don't lock down all Americans. Don't, you know, treat everyone else like immunocompromised. Lock down the nursing homes. But that language itself is not actually precise because the problem is you could do that for a month or so, but when you go and, you know, you definitely don't want them to be exposed. But on the other hand, when you go and um, indefinitely lock down uh, people in nursing homes and other seniors, even from family members for the rest of their lives, that is a hundred percent fatality rate. That is a hundred that you, they're going to atrophy. So that can't be done either. What is your proposal for, for balancing functioning life in, in a nursing home? Well, I would use um, the containment principle of osmotic immigration. And when we, when we had a time, osmotic immigration, osmotic immigration is the use of checkpoints. And if you have a, a, a facility that you know is without any infected persons within it, then the checkpoint is at the entry point. And that's when you would use containment based um, testing, either uh, self-testing in isolation um, or, you know, correcting the testing issues that I discussed earlier and um, having the proper protocols in place for testing. So you can either test uh, at the start of a shift or at the entry point where you haven't come into contact with any other people or anyone within the facility until you have that rapid test back. And then you would know that you don't have a high enough viral load for transmissibility when going in and among that population for a short period of time. If it's a new intake um, and it's somebody who's going to remain among that population, then that's when quarantine for a set predetermined amount of time. And right now the current recommendations are anywhere between eight and 14 days. Um, but eight is what the CDC is, is mostly going with these days. Um, but if you are to quarantine somebody for a very short period of time like that, um, then they can be in and among others in that population without anybody having to mask, without anybody um, having to, you know, be completely restricted from socializing like they are, which is the most heartbreaking thing. It, oh, yeah. It's already heartbreaking to have to be in a care facility or a long-term care facility for vulnerable populations. And so I don't think that we need to make life harder on people who are already, um, you know, having to be faced with those things. But once you're in that care facility, the transmissibility um, could be the, you know, 
often yucky uh, discussion of fecal oral transmission. And then you also have the the airborne and and surface transmission issues to work with. Um, And so once it's in, it's in. And it it just needs to be said. Once it's in one of those facilities, it's going to spread like wildfire um, just because that's that's the nature of it. When you get flu in a daycare center, same thing. Um, It's just they're they're it's it's just the nature of the facility and so protecting those vulnerable populations with these setup checkpoints and um, addressing what we're doing wrong with with testing and if it's not the rapid testing then we get into the whole pcr threshold um, issue where we're using thresholds that are way too high to indicate live viral matter and um, that's another thing that i um, discuss in the reopening guide is just from all angles, how can we do this differently and, um, you know, actually try to protect the people who this is supposed to all be about protecting? Because from the very beginning with this, we have have touted these measures as for the safety of others, but I just don't see anybody who's actually being protected. <laughs> it's just nope. endless fear mongering. And, 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 and I believe wholeheartedly that we hear so much about masks because they have no idea what to do next. And, and it's the greatest thing because you could just control people that way. Just wear a mask, just wear a mask. Every time a state gets in trouble, that's the first thing they turn to, even though it's never worked elsewhere. Um, there's no humility. There's no humility involved. That's part of the problem. There's a lot of problems here. You've discussed a lot of it. Certainly, this is the better way forward we need um, in a second term of the president. We need governors to adopt this. We need you guys to take this to the, to your local officials. Again, you go to rationalground.com as well as follow her at uh, Mamasaurus Meg on Twitter. Uh, really knowledgeable about a ton of issues. We didn't even get to them all today. Meg, you're invited back anytime, anytime you oh, want. Thank you. Um, I'd we, happily come back anytime. We we certainly covered a lot of ground and, and keep us updated. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Take care folks. And there you have it. That was Megan Mansell. Um, one of our really real public policy experts, public health experts at um, rationalground.com. And, and she certainly has a lot to say. We we barely scraped the service, but re-listen to the show again because uh, she made a lot of profound points. Just her expertise is so great that, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, you got to slow it down. Uh, some of the terms she was using, wow. Um, but again, like that that just goes to show there are people with experience um in education settings and PPE settings, she has both that have a lot to say on this and and they're not getting a platform and saying, shut up and mask up is, is no longer a strategy, especially when it's not working on COVID at all. Anyways, one thing if it did and it had the collateral damage, but you get the spread plus the collateral damage, we need a better way forward. This is going to be the single most imminent issue we have to push in Trump's second term. If he gets it, we'll find out. Folks, we are way out of time. Thanks for listening. God bless you all until tomorrow. This has been another episode of the CR Podcast. 